Quarkcast Nation, we are starting off our physician leadership week with the one and only president of PeakMD, psychiatrist, executive coach, author, speaker, consultant, Dr. Mamta Gautam. This episode is going to drop kick you in the mouth. We are talking innovation. We're talking about what it takes to lead change amongst physicians. We're talking about how a growth mindset and failing fast is the ticket to success. And we all obviously are going to talk about physician burnout and how we can create more resilient docs. So y'all ready for this? Let's go. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Karamantang. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients and their families because inefficiencies, overwork and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified and just for everyone involved. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a show I've been like super excited to do for a while. We got the one and only Dr. Mamta Gautam. She is revolutionary. She is the doctor of doctors. I don't even know where to start, but she's an innovator. She is a creator. She's a coach. She is making medicine a better place for us all. So I just really am excited to bring you on the show. Welcome, Mamta, to the show. Kwajo, thank you so much for having me. I have been looking forward to this uh, as well. I uh, can't wait for our conversation and to hear uh, where this takes us. Absolutely, because we're going to be talking about stuff that I feel like in some ways has been a bit taboo in medicine. I wouldn't say maybe taboo is a little strong, but it's innovation. Like I've always been saying on the show how we need to be embracing this more in medicine. We are very resistant to change. And so maybe from your perspective, you've had like um, great experience in terms of innovation in general, but in, in medicine, just in terms of your experience with innovation, just maybe speak a little bit to, uh, to that. Yeah, thank you, Kwajo. I appreciate your comments about change uh, not being easy in medicine. I've now been uh, in practice for 30 years. And as I look back over that time, I think that you know, it, there, there are things, there are many things that have changed, and, and certainly the, uh, the uh, result of evidence-based trials, the results of, uh, you know, focused research and knowledge translation, all of which are great, uh, uh, you know, reasons to, to make positive change in healthcare. But, you know, I also look at some other changes that people have struggled with that are really hard to do. And it's not just in healthcare. If we look overall, we see that, you know, one in three change processes succeed, right? And, and I remember actually about 30 years ago reading that somewhere and thinking, oh, is that interesting? And then in fact, you know, I know that over the years and, uh, you know, business schools, uh, the Harvard Business Review has constantly uh, had articles and books on change and change management and leading change. And, you know, about five years ago, a follow-up study, you know, still, it's only one in three change processes that succeed, right? So we know this is hard. I think this is exceptionally hard within healthcare. One of the things that I've looked at, uh, certainly just the way my practice started uh, back in 1990, I um, had the privilege of uh, treating physicians. And as I started to look at and understand the need to promote physician 
wellness, uh, you know, not just in my office, but at a systems level, starting to talk to uh, medical organizations, I, I can tell you it was not easy, right? Mm. Uh, people were very kind and people were very open to listening. And there was, but there was very definite uh, feedback for me at the time, which was, you know, Mumta, this is important, but unfortunately it's really not our priority right now, right? Mm. And so, you know, lots of people were very open to, to thinking about it, but, but there was never really any action on it. And so this is just something that as I look at and have, you know, consistently spoken about and pushed, it's just, you know, music to my ears to see all the discussion and conversation happening about physician health in the last, uh, say, seven years, right? So mm-hmm. we've kind of hit that tipping point. And, and so you think that, that's how long change happens uh, or takes to happen uh, within healthcare. And, um, you know, this is something I, so I thought about this just with my own personal experience about seven years ago, I started uh, an executive MBA program. And in between the two years of the uh, MBA program, they decided uh, to take us on a class trip to Silicon Valley. And one of the things that they wanted to talk about was um, helping us understand more about innovation and entrepreneurship and the sense that Silicon Valley really was this amazing habitat for innovation. And I was really excited to go because I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I have this opportunity. I wonder what I'm going to learn here that I can bring back to medicine and really, you know, fuel innovation in medicine. And what I found was that they do have enormous success in in, um, change and innovation. And it's not just uh, scientific or technological in Silicon Valley. What they really have is this habitat, this environment that totally supports innovation. So, you know, there are governing laws that support that. The banks support the ability to get the loans that you need to, to have innovation. The universities will teach about innovation. So you see just all surrounding that whole, you know, the people that are actually doing the innovation, they're surrounded by this environment that totally supports and, uh, the work that they're doing. And so, I, you know, and, and it also what I saw when I went there was this real ferret of adventure. Like people are excited. People are, are talking about, you know, imagining things that, that don't really exist yet. Yes. And, and very, very interesting. Like it's so um, very contagious, like when you're there. And this willingness to, to take a risk and this real tolerance for failure. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking willingness to take a risk, tolerance for failure, that is so not medicine, right? <laughs> and uh, really looking at, uh, you know, because you think about, what did you know the culture that we grew up in right the culture that we're trained in yeah it's not that at all exactly like a lot of type a's a lot of like perfectionism like you you're aiming and striving for a pluses throughout because it's it's so competitive to get in like we really attract that archetype or that personality type was there any other factors you think in terms of like in medicine why we're reluctant for change well, I think, you know, when I think again about change overall, when you think back to those, you know, why do two and three change processes fail? Basically, it's because it's not really about how we made the change. It's not really, uh, you know, did we do the right thing? But basically, it's about the people involved mm. in the change. And did we actually help the people, you know, come along with us in that change? And so, again, if we look at, look at that in medicine, you know, one of the things is, you know, did, did we explain enough what the need for change, right? And, and sometimes, you know, somebody decides to make a change, but often as, you know, practicing clinicians, we're not really quite sure why we need this change. Things were fine before. 
And so we don't necessarily clarify the need, the why as much as we could. I think the other is that sometimes, you know, change, you know, it's decided this is what we're going to do. And again, back to, you know, making sure we, we include the people involved. This is really about engagement and in our case, physician engagement, right? How do we engage physicians well? How do we help them, uh, you know, understand what we're trying to do, but then ask their opinion and help them design it, you know, with us. So one of the other things that I learned when I was down in Silicon Valley is all about design theory, right? And, and which is really like, let's go out to the people that are going to use this and ask them, help us design this, right? Again. Sorry, I didn't mean to get you off. No, I was going to say, so, you know, when we look at, let's go out to the people that use this and, and, you know, ask them to help us design this. Again, that's not something we see as much in medicine. I was so excited when you said this, because, you know, one of the things that I've completely underappreciated in this show was, from doing the show, was the patient experience, where you learn from when patients that have gone through whatever treatment, whatever course of illness, they have so much insight into what works and what doesn't work. And innovation is right there, to be honest with you. Simple things that could have huge scale and impact on not only the, their experience, but improve outcomes, reduce costs, like little things. And so uh, to me, like, that is one key thing that I I've, personally I've seen more of in research, in policy, and all that is to have, make sure the position, the, the patients have a voice at the table, you know, yeah. but that's um, so important, right? If yeah. they're the ones that are going to benefit from this, then they need to be able to help us understand what will benefit and, and how we can, you know, best make that happen. But I will tell you, Kwajo, uh, so my MBA thesis actually was about enhancing the patient experience. So this okay. is exactly what we were talking about. And, and there were lots of, you know, great conclusions. And, and there are some great examples of, uh, you know, organizations and clinics and, and, you know, medical care that has been quite patient-centered and patient-focused and, and, you know, then enhancing that patient experience. But one of the things that I, you know, that I learned and, and sort of the, the take that I uh, decided to focus on for my MBA thesis was really looking at what sometimes can block that. And my big take-home was, you know, you cannot have ideal patient experience or, and, and patient engagement without physician engagement, right? Mm. And so what we're really looking at back again to is that if it's the physician that's providing that care that the patient is going to have a good experience during, then the physician needs to be, you know, involved in that. The physician Mm. needs to, um, you know, feel like they are part of that process as well. And so as as important as it is to look at uh, involving the patients in helping us design that, I think, you know, if, if we as much look as helping, you know, having the physicians help us design that, then we're really more likely to get the ideal outcome. Then you'll get more, more, more likely to succeed. And maybe I should have asked this before, but just because you're, you're a rare doc, like what, what led you to want to explore this? Whether, you know, the executive MBA, whether to explore how to you know, enhance change? Like, like what got you thinking outside the box? Like, what, what is it about you that has led to this career path? Yeah, that's a good question. I'll tell you, I ask that a lot. And my family asks me a lot too. Like, <laughs> why can't you just be happy seeing patients in your office, right? You know, I, I will tell you, I am obviously very happy seeing patients in the office. And that is really rewarding to me. I, I think part of what's helped me is that 
the patients that I've had the privilege to see have been other physicians, mm -hmm. right? And so what I've gotten is this very unique glimpse into their day-to-day -day life, into looking at, you know, what are some of the frustrations? Uh, sometimes it's personal, a lot of times it's cultural, uh, and I mean cultural, the culture of medicine, and a lot of times it's, you know, the healthcare system. And, uh, and, and so, you know, starting helping me realize that, you know, my contribution to, the, to physician well-being is a very small factor here. And that's really, I think, what got me started on, you know, how do we make change in the healthcare system? And why is it so difficult? And are there some things that, that you know, are, are more likely to succeed than others? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, well, I'm certainly glad you, you did it because I think it's hard to quantify exactly how, how much you've contributed. But the, just the idea of wanting to pursue this, I'm sure, has helped many a physicians and, and, and the beauty of medicine is that it, it, it's such an amplifier. Like you, you help me out. I'm going to be the tools you, you help me with. I'm able to have, help uh, the med students or the residents with same principles. So I, that's why I think this is, this is wonderful. I'm wondering like in all your experiences, whether it's Silicon Valley or elsewhere, like, was there was there a rough framework for creating change? Like, you know, because we mentioned a couple of things like getting, making sure the, the users are going to be engaged, getting physician engagement, or is this kind of something that is too hard to really have a framework for? Yeah, you know, um, I actually teach one of the um, uh, CMA Jewel Physician Leadership Institutes on, on leading change. And so, you know, I can tell you that there are many great frameworks for change. One of the um, one of the, you know, standard uh, quintessential ones is Cotter's model for change. And, and so there are some very specific steps that we look at, right? And I think for most physicians and most physician leaders, we can learn what those steps are and follow them flawlessly. But again, back to why do they not work? Why does only one in three work? And that's where I think, you know, my understanding as a psychiatrist and, and really understanding people uh, you know, helps, to, helps contribute to that because really it's not the change process that fails, right? It's the transition. And, mm. and the, what, what the tra so the change process is really the, the external, here are the steps, this is, you know, where we are, this is where we're going to get to, and this is how much it's going to cost. And, and all of that is critical and important for us to think about, right? But it's not enough. The transition part is the internal part. It's helping the people that are going to be impacted by the change through that and understanding, you know, what process do they go through? And, and basically, in a very simplistic way, uh, what we have to do when we make a change is, you know, we're here, we want to go there, right? Mm -hmm. And even if all of us want to go there, um, and, and, you know, that rarely happens in change. There's usually some resistance. But um, we can look at, you know, that's just energy. So we need to understand how to harness that. And, but if we want to go there, and even if we all want to go there, it involves leaving here, right? Yeah. And so every time we leave, every time we end something or, or um, move away from something, there's a loss, mm -hmm. right? And if you think about the stages of loss, the first is denial. No, nope, mm -hmm. that's not going to happen, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, you know... Um, Okay, the, and, and so there are some people just put their head, you know, in the sand and just, you know, somebody will let me know when that's happening. In the meantime, I'll keep doing what I'm doing, right? And then the next stage is anger and protest, right? So then people are angry, people aren't happy about this, you know, they protest, this isn't fair, no one asked me, uh, uh, nobody even cares about me here, right? And, and, you know, as leaders, we need to know that 
that's actually a normal, a necessary part of change. And so, you know, if we can, again, listen and understand and uh, allow that person to talk about what was so great about what we're letting go of um, and acknowledge that, then they're more likely to move with us, right? And then there'll be some sadness because there has been a loss, um, but then we will more effectively move towards acceptance and integration, right? Mm -hmm. And and the problem too is that, you know, this is not a linear process. That's really just a scaffolding, you know, for, for the kinds of thoughts and feelings people have. And, you know, different people are at different stages along that process at different times, right? Mm-hmm. So very difficult for, for a leader to be able to manage all of those people and all of those different stages as we move forward. But, you know, the leader that's compassionate, the leader that anticipates that, and the leader that is there to listen and to support their colleagues. Um, and, and I think the listening part is really important because um, I have actually, uh, you know, helped consult in many change processes in North America where listening to some key people who were not happy with the process actually helped make that change even better, mm. right? And so I, th- I think that, you know, we, we need to be open to that and, and look at what we can learn as we move towards, uh, you know, the new change. Wow, there's a lot of gold in there because right now, COVID-19, mm-hmm. so w- one of the positives out of all this is like people are more willing to change. There's more innovation happening to be able to provide better care, scale up, uh, for example, mm-hmm. ability to see more patients in the ICU or even, you know, because of virtual care, like things have been more accepted. But I'm just thinking of example too in our ICU. We, we one of the things we changed and totally has gone through those steps of grief has been the like we now do uh, we do sit down rounds. So instead of going from bed to bed to bed mm-hmm. to make to reduce exposure, we've decided to sit down in one room and the nurses come and see us. And there was no, a lot of unhappy people, mm-hmm. and there was the denial. There is the protests. I still feel like we're in a protest phase, but it's... it's Remember I said these aren't linear, so we can go yeah. back to one of those stages, yeah. No, no, but it's it's just like, it's it's interesting, but, and then, and, and then, but the, the real thing that seems to be clear to me is, like, people want to be seen, they want to be heard, they want to have a voice and say, you know, this is why we don't, we oppose the process or whatever, and and when you give them that voice or that avenue... Whether the change is still happening or not, it just seems to have that much more of a calming effect, you know. And and I guess these principles in my mind are so important now because change is happening all over the place. Absolutely. COVID freaked out is co- freaked out people. People are all these kind of new technologies, these new monitors, like so much change is happening. So it's a really and, and so good rapidly, point. right? Yeah. And so rapidly, like I think of. You know, you talk about virtual care. Well, you know, within three days, I was out of my office at the clinic and at home, you know, do, uh, doing uh, Microsoft Teams or phone calls with my patients, right? Mm-hmm. And you think, wow, like any other three-day period in my career to date would never have had, right, that much change. And uh, so, you know, and, and these are things that, you know, we have been talking about and, and, you know, just not something, you know, just are we able to help patients even if they can't come see us face to face and are we able to go for that 
that was just that was a conversation that was a, a discussion not something that actually came to fruition and then all of a sudden it was possible right mm -hmm. and so you're right there's opportunity here an opportunity at a time of change and people are in the right mindset and i think that you know one of the things we've we've certainly seen is is how important that change mindset is are people ready for change mm -hmm. right and, and people had no choice right and so in, in covid we couldn't stay in denial yeah. we uh, uh, you know, we were yanked out of it pretty strongly and, and had to move forward through those phases. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's so interesting because I, I think part of my attraction to having you on the show too was, you know, not only understanding why we're resistant to change, but how to produce impactful change, but also the mindset we need to have, like, to be able to create more innovation because there's a lot of young upstarts coming through with fantastic ideas. This is why, I mean, a lot of people will be like, uh, you, you know, working with millennials, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, you know, a lot of complaints about that. I love it personally. It's totally stimulating. I, oh my God. And like yeah. our group, our, our uh, podcast group, shout out to the crew, by the way. Yeah. Um, they come up with ideas in seconds. They execute on it in seconds. I just, I love it because um, I just feel like as we get older, we get more set in our ways. But I, yeah, I just, I guess my question or comment or whatever you want to say is the mindset. How can we foster more innovation in our upstarts and our young, uh, young docs coming through? Yeah, that's a great question. And one I think about often, Pajo, you know, uh, so I think we have to understand, you know, the kind of person that, that we, that we, that comes into medicine. You talked about, you know, the perfectionistic uh, person, the one that's used to making A pluses. Well, you know, what that means is that's a person who's actually not used to failure, right? Mm -hmm. They're just not, you know, that's not what we do. We actually select that kind of person out who's had failures. We pick the people who have had continuous success and we bring them, we bring them in into this culture. But this culture that really is focused on self-sacrifice, focused on us continuing to be perfect and, you know, putting away our own needs and doing what's best for for our patient and for the healthcare system, we just break to a certain point. And, and that kind of thinking is reinforced by our teachers, by our training, by our patients as well, right? Also, part of our training is, is, is uh, you know, based on, uh, you know, I mean, as physicians, we, we, you know, we make decisions based on evidence, right? And based on data and based on concrete decision factors that allow us to move forward, which are, again, really important. What that does, though, is it does not prepare us for what to do when we don't have those, that evidence, when we don't have those decision factors. And, and this is, you know, which is really that, that, that zone where innovation happens, right? So, you know, there, there are uh, these mindsets that we've talked about. Uh, there's sort of that fixed mindset versus that growth mindset, which really says, you know, as I move forward, I'm going to grow. I'm going to learn something, right? I might not succeed, but it doesn't matter because I'm going to learn from this. Now, we're not talking about, you know, risk be, risky behavior. We're talking about calculated risks. Mm -hmm. And um, there's lots of things in medicine, even if it doesn't sort of, you know, we do not, we're not uh, looking at putting a patient in direct, direct risk. We're not looking at putting a patient in direct risk. But what we are doing is perhaps looking at, can we change the processes? Can we change the policies? Can we change the way we get there? which uh, certainly, you know, is more of a calculated risk that we might be able to look at. But it does involve leaving our comfort zone, right? Mm -hmm. And we have this comfort zone, right? This is the stuff I know. This is the stuff I'm well-trained in. And I know this. And I want to stay within this. 
And uh, I know I can think of many times in my life where I have, you know, had to what I, what I would say stretch, right? I stretch out of my comfort zone into something that now is not that comfortable for me because I don't have all the answers. And there's a lot of uncertainty in that. What we need to recognize, though, is that's where the learning happens, right? That stretch zone is actually the learning zone. And, um, and uh, you know, in my own sort of personal philosophy is really one of continuous improvement. I read this book that was really, uh, I think, uh, that really resonated with me. It was a book called Better by Atul Gawande. And really, he just talked about how important it was that we um, don't settle, right? That we, uh, you know, when we do something, we should enjoy that and we should appreciate that. And we should be looking at, could I do this better, right? And could I learn more? And how could I learn more? And how could I do better? And so to, you know, celebrate the, the progress that we do make, but never to settle for it, right? And, uh, and so, you know, I've taken that on as a personal philosophy. And so it really helps me push into that stretch zone, leaving my comfort zone. And I remember the first few times I did that. I have a really great colleague, I have actually a great group of friends who are part of a, a journal club. So friends and colleagues, um, and uh, you know, th these are people who have supported me every step of the way over the last, I would say, at least 25 years. And I remember talking to them one of the first times where I was thinking, you know, this is totally outside of my comfort zone. I'm not sure if I can do this. And I remember one of them saying to me, you know, comfort zones are highly overrated. Right? I remember thinking, you know, okay, right? I can, I can risk this a little bit. It doesn't mean I have to totally you know, disconnect mm -hmm. and, and be flailing, but if I can even take a few steps out of my comfort zone and stretch a little bit, then I start to learn, right? And um, yes, I risk failure, but, uh, but that's where the learning happens. Absolutely. I got Mumta, like, I, I, I was getting, I want to say chills or something as you're, as you're speaking to, to this, because you know, the, you look at some of the quote unquote failures that you've experienced in life, that I've experienced in life and the results of these failures, the lessons you learn, how you have become stronger, more innovative, more of a role model as a, some of the stuff that you've failed at or got out of your comfort zone. Like, yes. I mean, I'm just saying this because it's front of mind now. Like yeah. I did, I did a little blurb on like Black Lives Matter talk about my family and experience with racism and the stuff that has come through from that being, and that is for like, I'm a guy that called, you don't know me that well yet, but mm -hmm. I hold my cards close to my chest. Yes. And yeah, to be able to do that took a lot. And mm -hmm. the, the stuff that's coming through as a result, you know, more conversations with, with youth, uh, more organizations willing to, you know, really question how they approach diversity and racism. But yeah, absolutely. Being able to, to get used to being uncomfortable. That's one of the gifts, actually, of being in ICU. Because, yes. Or uncer uncertainty, uncomfortable, because there's often situations where you're like, I have no idea what's going on. Mm -hmm. Public might be freaking out about this. Yeah. I don't know the, what's going on, but I have the foundation to be able to manage this. And so you get through it and, and you, you know, patients do well. But having that level of uncertainty, that uncomfortableness, that like, this is when the beautiful stuff happens. I, I mean, I, I, I could speak to this on so many levels or give so many examples, but like, do you have any personal examples that you're willing to, to divulge in terms of when you stepped out of that comfort zone or, or just, yeah, where you were extremely uncomfortable and, and, and good things 
or the or you quote unquote failed and uh, there was some uh, positivity that came through? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this one's less about innovation, but it is about a change and doing something different. Um, so a few years ago, it was Ontario's turn to choose um, to to put forth a nominee to be the Canadian Medical Association president, and this would have been the year that uh, that that would have come to be. And so. You know, I was approached by a couple of groups of women physicians saying, you know, there is no woman physician on this ballot, and we think we, there should be one. Would you be interested? And this is, you know, one of those times where I'm like, that is so out of my comfort zone to be out there, to be, you know, in public, to, to, to be part of an election, you know, because really, when you fail, that's a, such a public failure. And I just, you know, and, and the whole idea, I don't know, you know, campaigning and asking for votes and, uh, just not something that, you know, up, up until then, basically it was, well, you know, I'm just going to do my best. And if people appreciate that or recognize that, then that will be, that will be enough, right? I don't really need to put myself out there. This is really putting myself out there. I did it, as I say, because I thought it was for a greater good. And, uh, uh, you know, off I went. And I tried to, you know, I gave it my best. Once I decided, I uh, gave it my best. It came in second, the Dr. Sandy Buckman, who's our current CMA president, oh, yeah. a, a real uh, dear friend and colleague, a true gentleman, uh, has been an amazing president this year. And so certainly I was really pleased uh, that, that he did, uh, you know, that he did win that election. But I remember being disappointed because it was public. I remember coming home and, you know, I, after, after I got that phone call, I came home and and, and I think about, you know, what, what did I do to help me deal with this? Well, I had a little cry. I made a cup of tea and I called my mother, right? And my mother was wonderful, right? She really got me to think about, uh, you know, she asked me a few very specific questions. She said, you know, you know, are you glad you did it? And I said, for sure. Right? I said, you know, it, it, was, it was important for me to have a woman on that ballot. And uh, it was a great experience. She said, do you think you made a difference? And I said, you know, I think I did because we talked a lot about physician health more than we have before. And, um, and I think, you know, we've raised awareness of a, of a topic that's, that's really critically important. And then my mom said to me, well, you know, so like, would you do it again? If, you know, if, if you were given that opportunity, like, you know, if, if you were to start at the beginning, would you have done the same thing? And I said, yeah, I would have made that same decision because it was a good decision. Then she said, you know what? Then you did succeed, right? And she said, just turn that page and move on. And that, in a nutshell, is really what, what I, I talk about when I say fail fast, right? And I think one of the things that we need to, to look at is recognizing that, you know, failure is a stepping stone. If failure is not the end game, it's a stepping stone. And so to be really agile whether it's personally or as an organization or in healthcare, we really have to give people the opportunity to try. We have to give people the opportunity to fail. And, and that means that, you know, we need to help them fail fast. Mm-hmm. And fail fast is really this concept where, you know, we recognize that it didn't work out as well as we would hope. We look at what, you know, what was the problem? What were the lessons learned? And then we don't sort of take it personally. We don't ruminate about it. We don't make, you know, the fact that it didn't succeed somehow become about us and the fact that we're failures and, you know, in that whole rumination of what could I have done better? It's really, you know what, I, I, it was worth a try. It didn't really work out the way I hoped to, but I've learned something from it. I'm going to turn the page and move on. 
Right? And, and I think that's the kind of uh, attitude we need to start to adopt. That's the mindset. I think that's part of what, you know, as leaders in medicine, we need to start to be thinking about and talking about a little bit more and, and role modeling for colleagues uh, as we encourage them to take uh, some of these very calculated risks and innovate as they move forward. A hundred percent. Like this is, I mean, if you think of uh, all the improvements we could be having in healthcare and, you know, we, we still have a lot of work to do mm-hmm. and to, to be able to provide that culture or mindset or just encourage that, those things, like only good things will happen. And I think part of it too, and I see this in medicine all the time, like we very, we're very much outcome driven, like where, what I mean by that is you could do everything right. Like I had a conversation with this colleague, a uh, surgical colleague the other day. He's like, you did everything right. Nothing you would change really in terms of how to improve that patient outcome, but he had a, the patient had a poor outcome. And you beat yourself up for it, you second guess yourself and all that stuff. But if the process is right, you, you know, you, there's only so much you can control. And similar to like any kind of innovation that you're trying to do, like you, you look at your process and sometimes you, sometimes you get a win and, you know, maybe your process is poor, but sometimes you'll get that win. But ultimately, if you look at your process and say to yourself, you know what, you know, we've done everything right, or this is where we can improve, you know, and you just kind of learn and, and, and create that, that, create that ultimate goal that you're trying to achieve. Like this is the ultimate, to me, that's the most important lesson. And so, yeah, I, I hope, um, as you said, we could be more receptive to this fail fast mentality because only, honestly, I don't think only good could come out of that. Yeah. And I wonder too, like how much, like I'm very skeptic always when it comes to my senior colleagues, just like in terms of changing mindsets. So to me, you know, the focus has always been on young physicians, residents, medical students. In your experience, do you, do you find people have that capacity to change, especially as we, as we get older? You know, I think we do. And I think that, uh, because, because, you know, I mean, some of what you're talking about is personality. And I think that if you're the sort of person that likes things to be known, that likes things to be sort of solid and secure, then that might be harder to push out of that, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that, uh, and, but as you've said, you know, e- even those people have somehow had to manage during the uncertainty that we've had here now during the pandemic. Um, but, but there is that. I think that sometimes, so, as I say, it's the culture of, you know, in, in which we work that, Kind of makes us be more likely to to stick to the tried and, and true and the tried and tested, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things that I, you know, I wanted to add here was um, not everyone does that. And one of the things that I found as I go into healthcare organizations is that help people look for what we call, you know, pockets of positive deviance. Because even if the culture totally doesn't encourage innovation, there are some people that have just figured out, well, in our small group or in our department, we've figured out a way to do it that's a little more efficient or that works better for us or that, and that's positive deviance. And so really in, in complex systems, which is what healthcare is, we see these pockets. And, and again, I think that, uh, you know, how do we look for them? How do we identify them? How do we recognize and, and reward that and encourage you know, and really create an environment where, where, you know, people feel like they're empowered to try and do something a little bit different uh, just to see if it will work, right? You know, I think that, that some of that is already happening. You know, and sometimes we do say, you know, as you get older, you get more set in your ways. But 
I'm not so sure that's true. You know, if I think about for myself, as I get older, I kind of feel like, you know, I have less to lose, right? Mm-hmm. You kind of, you know, think, well, you know, maybe, maybe I don't, not that I don't care what people think, but I care less than yeah. I did when I was in my 20s or 30s, right? Yeah. And, and so some of those fears that hold us back as, as, as individuals in terms of, well, you know, how awful would it be if I, uh, you know, ran for this election and, and didn't get it? Well, you know what, matters a little bit less now because I can, I can, you know, assess that by a number of other factors and still see that that was a good thing to do, right? I think that, you know, so I guess what I'm talking about is a little bit more of that confidence that perhaps we gain more as we get older. Yeah, I, I, hope, I hope you're right. It's, it's, it certainly reigns true. Like, I definitely care less about what people think as you get older. You just realize, like, you know, life is too short, you know, and you, and you can't please everybody. But yeah, I, I, I really hope, I hope you're right. Because, yeah, especially now when there's a lot of innovation and positive change that could be coming through a peri or post-COVID or whatever the term you want to use. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, having these conversations like we're having now could really hopefully have some value in terms of embracing it. A couple of things that I, I mean, this might, this is a bit uh, left field, but I, I got to ask you because I have you in front of me because we could do a whole podcast on physician wellness for sure. And like, and physician health. Yes. Yeah, a whole series. Yeah. yeah. But any advice? I know this is so bad. I know I'm going to put you on the spot for some soul. Like, any key advice or concepts to really improve physician wellness slash health? Because I mean, this was part of your campaign. Was there any key themes that you would want to reach out to the physicians listen listening now? Okay, so um, yeah, how do I condense it? So you know what? Let Sorry. me maybe focus. That's okay. <laughs> Thank you for asking. Let me focus on two key concepts. I think perhaps that that uh, I I would like the listeners to to reflect on. So one is that you know over the years, I have done a lot of of work in 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 you know in trying to enhance physician wellness and and looking at you know what were the limitations? Why did why did it not work better or more than than it could? And, you know, this came to me, interestingly, uh, when I was actually helping my young nephew, my young nephew do his math homework. And he was doing this, uh, he was learning about the whole concept of multiplying by zero. He was like, oh, auntie, this is so great, right? And he goes, I "I get all of these, all of these answers right. So he's like, ask me, ask me anything, right? So I say, well, what's five times zero, right? He gets, like, he rolls his eyes, that's so easy, right? Ask me a bigger number. So you know, I'm like, what's 832 times zero? And he gets that, right? And then he's like, ask me even a bigger number, right? So we're now into the millions. And he still, you know, he knows. You take any number, it doesn't matter what it is, multiply it by zero, and it's zero. And I remember thinking, you know, that doesn't just apply to mathematics. That applies in a lot of other areas. And I wonder how it applies in physician wellness. And, and it helped me come up with a formula that, uh, that really, you know, says that the physician wellness is a product of three things. It's a product of individual factors, the cultural factors in medicine that we alluded to today, um, and some of the healthcare system factors, right? And so if all of my work is focusing on, say, you know, trying to help the individual in front of me in my office, but also perhaps, you know, changing some of the culture, making, addressing some of the, perhaps the stigma involved in reaching out for help, but we haven't changed anything at the systemic levels, that's zero, I'm still multiplying by zero. 
Now, I think it's really important because if we switch to the other and say, you know what, it's not up to the physician. Physicians are all healthy and resilient and it's all the healthcare system. I want to make sure that we don't swing it too much the other way because then the individual part's going to be zero, right? So we want to be really careful that we're not multiplying by zero. That's one big concept. The second part is really about resilience and, and, and to focus then on the individual factors, not because they are the most important or because, you know, we need to be more resilient, but with all due respect, they are the ones that we have the most control over, right? You know, controlling the culture, controlling the healthcare system, having some impact at that level is totally possible, but it's going to take time and it's going to take alliances and collaboration that, you know, uh, where some of the individual things uh, we can do immediately. And so, you know, my framework for, for looking at how do we manage and maintain and enhance individual resilience is really what I call the five C's. And this is actually also very helpful if, in fact, you know, and part of how we fail fast is we, you know, turn that page, but then we make sure we take care of ourselves, right? And um, so the first is a sense of control. And so we need to look at what we do control and what we don't control. A lot of times, as, and particularly as bright people, we focus on the part we don't control and wish that were different. And, and mostly because that's the bulk of the problem. But in fact, there's a small part that is ours to control and of that we have 100% control, right? So we want to be able to identify what we can and can't control and identify what we can and focus on that and perhaps learn to live with or, or lobby for change in the factors that we didn't control. The next C is commitment. And one of the, you know, when I talk about commitment, I mean our commitment to the work that we do. Like, what is it about medicine? And, and the work we do on a day-to-day -day basis that is meaningful to us, that aligns, aligns with our values, that is really the why of what we do things. Mm -hmm. And particularly as we get stressed, particularly as we get overwhelmed and, you know, whether it's our day-to-day -day practice, it's issues in our workplace, it's dealing with this pandemic, you know, we need to remember that why. We need to, you know, think of why is the work we do meaningful to us? And how can we stay connected to that meaning? Because that's what's going to help us go in and do it again tomorrow. Um, the third C is connections and, and the caring connections. So to think about who are the people in my life that help me, that sustain me, that support me, that are there for me, right? And, and how can I, you know, create, but also maintain those relationships? And, and, so, and to put some thought into who are those people in my workplace that support me and how can I support them? But also who are the people in my day-to-day -day personal life? The fourth C is really is calming, right? Because there are times here, and we've alluded to some of those times, you know, when we're grieving, when we're angry, when we're stressed, uh, when we failed, where of course we're not going to be happy, right? And so we have to think about how are we going to manage our, our, uh, our feelings so that we can, we can you know, de-escalate and calm down at that moment, right? And again, lots of good strategies to do that. I encourage you to look for some of those and, uh, you know, we can talk about those at another time. And then finally, the, the last C is uh, caring for ourselves. And this is one that, you know, seems intuitive, but really what I've noticed over the years working with colleagues is what I call this brain-heart gap. That there's a gap between what we know in our brains we should be doing to take care of ourselves and what we actually in our hearts allow us, give ourselves permission to do, right? And so really wanting us to think about, you know, what, what, how do we bridge that gap? You know, what would you tell your best friend to do in a similar situation? And then how can we start to do some of that ourselves? And so this is not rocket science, but it's really, really critical. And 
you know, and often in medicine, back to that culture that we, you know, live and work in that tells us, like, taking care of ourselves is selfish. The patient comes first. We shouldn't be doing that. We see this as, as selfish or a luxury in some way. And I really encourage us to reframe that as an investment, right? Mm-hmm. You invest a little bit in yourself. And what you find is that you're much more available to all the people in your work and personal life that need you during the day. So in fact, you know, taking care of yourself first is probably the most unselfish thing that you can do. Allows you to provide better care, to be your best self. Absolutely. Man, because I got I just want to echo what you just threw down. Like this is culturally, this is probably the the toughest one to accept amongst clinicians. Like, you know, it's as you said, it's like you gotta be selfless. It's all about patient, the organization, whatever. But you really, to be able to provide excellent care, you got to have, you got to be taking care of yourself. It's similar to, I, I often say to my patients too, like in, that, you know, when they have a, a chronically ill patient, like you got to take time for yourself. You know, dad's okay. We, we, we got an eye on them. If you need that full night's sleep, you need to go to that yoga class, that spin class, whatever you need to do, come back refreshed so you could be your best self. And yeah, I mean, those five C's are, are gangster right there. Like, would you say, is there other components? Was there another one that you find quite challenging for physicians to accept or to approach? Like, for example, one, the other one that came to mind for me was the calming, like mm-hmm. how challenging that might be in the moment, or maybe you could speak to any of those. Yeah, well, I'm happy to speak to the calming. I think that, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. One of the things that, one of the first things that I, you know, that I hear from colleagues is, well, yeah, I know what to do, um, you know, when, I, when I'm upset, but I'm not that upset yet. You know what, actually you are, right? And, and so one of the things that we, you know, don't do very much is stop and kind of take our own pulse and think of, you know, is this one of those times where I need to be? Because we're so busy denying this, putting our feelings aside and, and still continuing to function as best as we can. But we don't sometimes recognize that, hey, wait, now this is a moment where I need to stop and take care of myself, right? And then, of course, you know, the calming techniques are really helpful. And, and there are lots of them. And, and this assumption that, oh, it takes a lot of time, or I need to, you know, have a certain app, or I need to, and we don't necessarily, right? That, you know, there are lots of small things we can do, just learning to deep breathe, learning to do some abdominal breathing that will trigger the, the parasympathetic response. There are things like visualization. There are things like uh, you know, passive and active relaxation. There are, there, um, there's mindfulness meditation. And, and you know, mindfulness is a great tool. There's a lot written about, actually, the benefits of mindfulness meditation, and particularly with, uh, you know, with healthcare professionals. And I think part of the reason that that's been so, so helpful is, A, because it works, but B, because it's also quite standardized. So we can actually teach people an eight-week course on mindfulness and then measure uh, very specific things. And, um, and what we see is even, you know, months later, still we see some benefits. And so I, I think because it is standardized, we can teach it and we can measure it, which some of the other tools are less measurable, um, maybe not less effective, but, but have been, you know, not been as easily measured to prove that. So in, in the mindfulness, I just want to come back to is, is so critical because it's, you know, this is, of course, overgeneralizing, but I'm going to do it anyway. This assumption that the sense that, you know, if I think about what's happened in the past and I have regrets there, that's where I become more prone to depression. If I think about what's going to happen in the future and worry about that, it hasn't even happened yet. 
that's where I, that leads me to anxiety. So to get, you know, to not feel either of those things, I need to stay firmly fixed in the present, right? And that's what mindfulness does. It, it allows you to stay in the moment. It allows you to appreciate what's here. And, you know, even as we're doing this now, right, just to be mindful of, you know, say the chair you're sitting on. And, you know, how does that feel on your back? How does that feel under your thighs or your feet on the floor? And just as soon as we do that, and even we do that between every patient, you know, what we do is we pull ourselves back into the present, right? So again, very calming. And there are lots of other smaller, very quick mindfulness techniques uh, that, you know, don't involve. And again, the assumption is it's this half hour, you know, an hour mindfulness uh, uh, meditation that I have to do. No, you don't. You just, you know, to be, to, if you can and you have time, those are helpful. But the corollary that if I don't do that, it's not going to be good enough. It's not true, actually. There's mm-hmm. a lot of quick things we can do to just be mindful and stay in the moment. Um, mm-hmm. what, what I wanted to say was two things about that is that what we tend to find is that, the, uh, is, is that uh, we can fuss a lot about which, mind, which uh, relaxation exercise or calming technique to use. What I will tell you is that I can promise guaranteed unconditional results with one proviso which is that you practice, right? So what you want to do is find it and then do it. Do it regularly, especially when you're not stressed so that you learn it properly. It becomes rote. It just becomes something that you learn to do so that, you know, the day that you're stressed, right, you can just glide into it effortlessly. So any one of those will work provided you choose something and you do it regularly so it's there for you, right? And what I found over the years is that colleagues who say to me, yeah, that's all great, Mumta, but you know what? I'm not that calm yet, right? And so what I've come up with is what I call the ABCs of calmness. So the A is allow it, right? You're upset, just allow it. Just sit there, you know, find somebody that's safe in a safe place um, and vent, vent for a little bit or write it out, right? And just let it out. Now, remember, if you write, these are things you rip up. These are not letters you ever send to anybody. I'm going to say that one more time. You do not send these letters. <laughs> do not press send. Yeah. yeah. Right? It's what I call a CLM, a career limiting move. Like, you do not send those letters. <laughs> but you like know what? That. But it's okay to write them, right? And, and really what it does is it, 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 are, it helps you articulate what you're thinking. It helps you, it helps you validate it. And it also helps you release it, right? And, and there's some good studies that show that a sitting um, with a feeling for about 20 minutes is long enough to actually have it, to express it, to, you know, experience it, to process it, and then to let it go, right? So this doesn't have to take up your whole day, but allow it for about 20 minutes. And that's very helpful. And then people will say to me, yeah, but you know what? I'm still all revved up after that. That's okay. So the B is burn it off, right? And so, you know, it helps to do something physically, um, physically active, go for a run, uh, walk around, go garden, do something that, you know, just break out into a dance, just do something burn off some physical energy. So then you've got the allow it, the Zumba, exactly, the burn it off. And then, and then you're more likely to make better use of the C, those calming techniques. That, I got to tell you, that is gangster right there. That's some serious, like great advice. Because I think you, I mean, especially coming from someone that is as with as as much experience as you, because you'll see a bunch of, techniques out there you know like you know i don't know if for example your a of uh what's the a like what's the allow it allow it like i don't know how well that's accepted because this is something that Mm -hmm. like for me personally 
I would love the green light on some of that. Like you, you're having a, a tough day. You've slept three hours. You're on call. Some guy cuts you off. My, my like inner voice is telling me, oh, don't let it bother you. Like yeah. soothe yourself. But like my, my loins are telling me, ah, what are yeah. you doing? Like you want to just get that rage out and scream, you know, especially in the car where you're, you know, no one's going right. to, no one's going to hear you. But I and, think and that happens. Right. That's important that, you know, you can have any feeling you want and you should allow it. It's what you do about it, of course, that makes it okay or not. Right. But to have that feeling and to acknowledge it is always okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's great. Like, and the other thing I I think I just want to echo what you said about mindfulness too. Like, like people do often think you got to be doing like some sexy app and some 20 minute routine or whatever, but like something as like I, I personally love the walking uh, meditation. You just are mindful meditation where you're, you're, yes. you're walking, you're active, and you just are co- cognizant of your foot hitting the ground, the, mm-hmm. the breeze on your skin, and just doing that for even a minute or two mm-hmm. in the middle of the day, no device, you know, or even when you're waiting for coffee in line, put your, keep your phone in your pocket or your fanny pack and just allow yourself to take a couple breaths to, to be aware of the people around you and just th- those times can help decompress and, and just activate your parasympathetic nervous system and just allow you to have that better day, better moment. And, and the practice, that's the thing too. You just, you know, it's not a cookie cutter. Not everyone has to have the exact same model, but just the principle though is taking time to be in the present and before you know it, I mean, studies have shown even within medical pr- practitioners, like mm-hmm. multiple benefits. And so I think even out some schools were teaching it for their med students, actually. They are I don't, now. Yeah. yeah, which mm-hmm. I think is, which is brilliant. I mean, especially like we're, we've seen, you know, our med students, we've had now, unfortunately, the most recent Ryan Sagan who passed away from uh, suicide, you know, like adding these tools you know, I, I'm not, and I don't want to say this would, you know, this is going to, would solve everything, but just having these tools at the, at our disposal, maybe could have some impact to all this kind of burnout and, and increasing the mental distress amongst our, our clinicians. But um, it's so important what you're doing. So important. But any other highlights in terms of, of um, physician wellness or, or physician health that we haven't uh, covered? You know, I think the the only other thing that I would add that is always an important message for me to give is that whole concept of, you know, this this culture in which we live and work, the stigma that prevents us from uh, from, uh, reaching out for help if we need, and, you know, the... the sense that, you know, you just have to be in control and, and be perfect all the time and, you know, really shifting to it's okay to be not okay, right? Mm-hmm. And we're human. And, uh, and, and, and so, you know, a point that I really like to make is that it can happen to any one of us. You can take any highly functioning person, any highly functioning physician and push them and push them and push them into what for them is an unhealthy situation and they're going to become unhealthy. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it really behooves us to, you know, make sure that we are, are watching that for in ourselves and, and, and people around us that, and, and showing compassion and, 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 you know, looking for those signs and, and feeling like we can reach out, right. That none of us are immune to this it can happen oh. to any one of us. Yeah. I, and I, 
you know, I think we've all seen this in our careers where the person that you think, the last person you think would have, that would burn out, actually burns out. So it, it, it's so true. Like, uh, you know, we're all susceptible. Mm-hmm. And um, increasing awareness, talking about strategies to cope, and just dealing with it at a systemic level, so important. And mm-hmm. I, I'm certainly glad people like yourself and organizations are taking this very seriously. Mumta, I got to thank you so much for taking the time with me and uh, and coming on the show to talk about all of this. I think it's going to, you know, whether it's innovation, whether it's physician health, like all these things are so important. And I think hopefully we'll we'll see improvements continue throughout these uh, these major topics. And and I, I just want to also commend you for the work you do, like how like the physicians, the doctor's doctor talking about innovation how to create change how to how to how we take care of ourselves all these things are amazing important topics so i just i want to celebrate you and thank you for doing this yeah i'm I'm definitely hoping to have you back yeah thank you very much quadro for having me today and uh, it was a real privilege to be able to share this time with you absolutely thanks so much